Hello and welcome to the Show Up podcast. This is a place where we explore leadership and what that means for us, where we aim to show up with honesty, vulnerability and curiosity. Use this space to explore what leadership means in your world and how you can show up to be the leader you want to be, whatever that means for you. Welcome, Jamie. Welcome, Graham. And welcome, listeners, to this episode of the Show Up podcast. Great to see you guys. How are you doing? Grand. Grand. That's a nice northern expression. Grand. Grand. Great. Super smashing great. So, well, you're not allowed to probably say that anymore, are you? So, <laughs> certainly, not, certainly not to mimic the person who said it. Yes. It's a controversial um, opener. Controversial. <laughs> straight, in, straight into the controversy is our Graham. Uh, it's our Graham. Oh, Bill Graham Silabrack. Thanks for that, mate. <laughs> this is going to be the Northern edition of the Show Up podcast. Um, yeah. Oh, gents, lovely to see you both. And we have decided to talk today a little bit about labels and labels that crop up in the workplace, in organizations, in interpersonal relationships, and how that can affect the way that we interact with people, the way that we view people and bring up risks and opportunities and all sorts of things that leaders should be thinking about. And this is something that is interesting to me. So we, one of the things that I do is train consultants and particularly train them to be make connection with their clients and build relationships with their clients. And we actually have a little exercise that we call audience assessment, where we get people to ask four questions about ask themselves four questions about a client that they are working with who are they what motivates them what do they currently believe to be true and how are they going to react to your message and the idea there is to get some understanding of where the client is coming from so that you can get some sense of how what you're telling them might might land and it's a really interesting thing because I always say to people well how how are you going to figure out you haven't met a client before how are you going to figure out who they are and what motivates them. Let's start with those two background contextual questions. And I would say 99% of the time, the first answer comes up as I'm going to look them up on LinkedIn and see what their role title is and what they've done in the past. And I've always found that really fascinating because I've fallen in the trap before of assuming a whole bunch of things about somebody based on their role title or based on what they've done in the past. Oh, they work in finance, therefore they must be motivated by the following things. They work in HR, they must be this type of person. They're a CEO, they must care about these things. And it can really trip you up if you take that label and you just project a whole bunch of imagined things about what therefore that person might care about or who they are or how they might behave. So I think this is an interesting thing and something definitely for leaders to be aware of. Jamie, you were saying before we came on air that you had uh, an experience related to this just this morning, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. And when Graham said, hey, listen, labels is the order of the day, it occurred to me that in the meeting that I'd just been in, uh, and part of what I'm doing now is occasionally um, pitching for executive search uh, mandates, and today was a, a, a chair 
mandate that we're pitching for. And in the course of the conversation, we were talking about psychometric assessments that they tended in their organization to use or their experience of psychometrics and um, how they found them very helpful when they're looking at both evaluating but also thinking about growth opportunity and so on and so forth. And therefore, how did we uh, as a firm integrate that into the search work? And And I pointed out straight away, I said, one thing that you will learn from when you work with us is that we we don't do what I'd call personality type assessments. We actually look at traits and tendencies. And the person on the other side of the desk, I think she's the chief people officer, she said, that's really interesting because I've been reading about the difference between types and traits. And I said, well, what do you what do you make of it? She said, well, types I found I've always used them. And that's what has always been sold to me as being the most advanced way of understanding what's behind the job title. What's the the motivator of the person? And yet I realized it doesn't always work because a type is like a label or a badge. And, and that's not what happens all the time. I said, exactly. Types can be useful if you want a shortcut but to really try and understand the context of what might show up in any given moment, then it's it's also very helpful to understand what traits and tendencies typically are displayed or might be something that somebody's prone to, which is it's it's kind of like a different kind of label, but it's a much more fluid and dynamic one and doesn't try and show you a shortcut, which is actually actually cheating in many ways, because it means that you kind of get only a surface layer understanding of what really might be going on with the person. So it was fascinating that we talking about labels and here I was having a live conversation with a potential client about exactly that. How about you, Graham? Yeah, I have a real funny thing with labels. Well, I have a funny observed thing with labels, actually. Um, Because like you say, Jamie, I think a lot of people use them to shortcut. And And it can be a great avenue to understanding a lot about something very very quickly you know something gets labeled as luxury first thing that most people think of it's going to cost more or you know someone's labeled as a ceo as you said derry oh that means they must lead the whole thing and then you get into job title politics where someone's a vice president of toilet paper and you know managing director of uh you know basingstoke or whatever it might be for a big company. You find that labels can, I find that labels can shortcut a lot of thinking, but what people don't realize is that that shortcutting thinking, therefore shortcuts a lot of what you two have just spoken about, their ability to miss important information or miss where something may be different in someone's application of a label, i.e. how they act and behave. So I kind of sit there and I find labels a real, uh, what's the word, divisive kind of tool because in some ways they can be really helpful, but in other ways they can be really blinding to so much. And I feel as a society, when we, you know, we were just talking before we came on air that we're things are pretty full in society these days, right? There's a lot of things going on, a lot of stuff that people need conscious thought about. So brains naturally try and shortcut when things are busy. They naturally try and make it lighter and simpler. Well, that's great, except what are you actually missing out on because you've taken that shortcut? 
is kind of the question I find myself asking. What yeah, what what are we saying there? Therefore, if it's a brain thing, is it possible that it just it just happens? There's like a natural inclination to do it, no matter who you are, what your background is. That it is a tendency for us, almost neurologically, to try and label things just for ease of navigation of the environment we're in. As I as I understand it, I, I, there's your what you guys have said have triggered two thoughts in me um one is around exactly this point of the shortcut and one is around archetypes and younging archetypes and collective unconscious i'm going to come back to point two but i just want to flag it so that yeah maybe remind me if i forget <laughs> on the simplification point the, the shortcut point i think the, absolutely what graham what you said that we shortcut and that comes with risks because by shortcutting we make assumptions actually we have no option but to shortcut because the complexity of the world that we're living in is not something that we can handle every day so for example the three of us are on a zoom call at the moment and we are not spending any of our mental energy thinking about how zoom works and how actually this real-time video technology can Mm. work for us we just assume that it does yeah we just assume that the power will stay on that we are going to be sitting in a room and like we just simplify, simplify, simplify. So I'm not thinking about anything other than what I see on my screen right now, even in my very near vicinity, like my, my vision is blurred at the edges, right? Like, and you just have to assume that all that stuff is going to happen. And this is one of the ways that, as I understand it, our brains make life possible in all of the complexity with which we live. And we have to do that in our interpersonal relationships as well. So when you meet somebody you can't cope with trying to understand all of the complexity of that person in front of you. You have to put a label on them on some level so that you can understand them, whether that's because they look like a man or their race or their height or their weight. You're immediately making a whole bunch of judgments and assumptions about them and role title and the function that they work in and their work experience, et cetera. All of those things are just part of those judgments. So it's, it's not only a risk, it's also unavoidable, I think, from what I understand. So the question then for me is, well, how do we bring awareness to that and awareness to the assumptions that we're making so that it doesn't trip us up? Yeah, the three label-like words that come up for me, and they are labels because they're labels that talk about an action, delete, distort, generalise. Delete, what, distort, distort generalise. What a brain tends to do with new information. And when you meet someone for the first time, that's the choices you're making all the time. Do I delete what they've just told me? Do I distort it to make a new story up that matches the one I want to give or goes against the one there? Or do I generalize what they've told me? So I like you say, you compartmentalize it and box it out. So there are labels for behavior, but what I also hear you talking about there, Derry, is how our biases then take those labels and distort it even further without us even trying to. Yeah, because we're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to make decisions. So we have a framework and we have to fit things into that framework. It's too difficult in real time to go, oh, hold on a minute. This suggests that my whole framework is wrong. Mm. I'm going to have to reevaluate it. And maybe we do have to do that periodically, but you can't do that real time. So you have to squeeze them in. And maybe that's part of the distortion. You squeeze them into that, that framework. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Jamie, your point on kind of personality types, like 
I have a very clear picture in my head of what someone who rates J on an MBTI scale is like. And it's completely false for most people. But it's just what I have is like, well, if someone's J, they're going to behave in this certain way. If someone's E, they're going to behave in this certain way. Clearly, that is an enormous generalization across the spectrum of different behaviors that people can present. Yeah, I'm fascinated. So Jamie a, the I, a, what do you say? <laughs> Jamie the I. Um, so there's a, there's a non-conscious element of it. It's it mm. just, it's almost inescapable that for us to be able to operate in a relatively efficient way as a human being, we are simplifying all the time. So labeling is part of that. Whether it be just making sense of what we're doing day to day, minute to minute, but also it bleeds into how we interpret other data, uh, which whether it be a roll title or what somebody's wearing for the first time or how they show up and announce themselves in a, in a, in a given you know, commercial situation or business situation. That's fascinating. So there's actually nothing we can do about it. It's just going to happen. But then understanding what the you know, benefits and limitations or risks and opportunities of that is actually something that does require effort. And that's something that you can start to tune it, tune up a little bit, I suspect, in terms of just being aware of how you're doing it real time, although you can't necessarily see how quickly you're doing it. And I don't know whether, have you guys ever come across the concept of the ladder of inference? No. No. Um, many years ago, I was uh, lucky enough to train with uh, an outfit called Action Design over in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who specialize in what they call productive relationships through conversation um, and the skills to develop um, uh, uh, the muscle to have that kind of mutual learning type experience through a conversation. It's very specifically focused around conversation. Um, and they get involved in all sorts of consulting work as well as doing this sort of training and accreditation. And one of the things that they base all their thinking around is uh, the Chris Argyris models of behavior, um, which are imaginatively, imaginatively called model one and model two. Model one being how 90% of people operate 90% of the time, which is I have an idea in this conversation. I'm going to find a way of impressing upon you that my idea is right and you're going to leave this conversation knowing that I'm right or some, some variation on that. Model two is a slightly different one, which is what Chris Argyris spent most of his life experimenting with, which was there's an opportunity for us to learn from each other in this conversation. Now we've got to find a way of sharing enough evidence of what is informing our opinion about what's going on so that we can learn from each other and collectively agree the best way forward. He said it's really hard because it's very clunky. And part of it is understanding how quickly we jump to conclusions that inform the way we interact in conversation because it's happening very spontaneously in real time and one of the tools he developed was something called the ladder of, ladder of inference which he said is that a simple label of a cognitive process which takes data a pool of data that you have graham or derry and i have from which i extract some useful stuff that i like i'm drawn to to which i add meaning and then it informs my choice of action and that happens in a nanosecond all the time. It's always happening. And he said, in most model one conversations, no one is slowing down the process of what's going on in my ladder and the fact that Graham's got a ladder and Derry's got a ladder. Um, and you can end up with what he calls conflict or dueling ladders. 
where all you're hearing in the conversation is um, the end of that process each time, rather than saying, hey, talk me back down your ladder so I can see what evidence you've got that you've been exposed to that's helped you extract something that you've had meaning to that's informed your choice of what to say or your influence in this. And that that really strikes me now as being one of those very helpful little tools that gives a nice little bit of structure in oversimplified ways, perhaps, of talking you back from the label that you might have given something right back down to the evidence that you may have drawn the idea from in the first place. What I like about that is it it helps people objectify the route to get to that data. It gives them a roadmap to get to the curiosity of how something may have originated. And I think that could be quite a powerful for people where they understand, they start to understand the impact a label has had on someone and the stories that they form. I wanted to ask you both a really interesting question because we all have our own businesses, right? We all have a business entity that we all run. What's your job title and how did you come up with it? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I've shut, I've shut the other one down now, but I did have a second business for a little while and I had different job titles in each of those businesses. Interesting. So the one that's current, the one that's live. Uh, I tend to run with managing director or founder and managing director or occasionally lead trainer. Yeah. Why? Um, why? I think because I think there's probably two things going on. So one is a a need to be easily understood within the kind of labels of the industries that I operate in. So people kind of get that you're senior if you're a managing director. Um, and a reluctance to call myself CEO because that sounds pretentious in a small business. But in the other business I had, I did call myself CEO because we had three founders and we needed to distinguish between ourselves. And that we had hopes for that to become bigger, which never happened. Interesting. Yeah. Jamie? Just on that note, sorry, Jamie, before you dive in, we, when I was, um, I was chief finance operations officer at a boutique consulting firm that we sold back in 2017 that we sold to an American firm and all of our partners. So the, the normal title in consulting and in many professional services is partner in the UK for the senior people who are selling work, the role titles within this other, this American business, the equivalent role titles were managing director or senior managing director. And so all of our partners transitioned into the new business and changed their role titles and we had a hell of a lot of debate about whether that was going to cause massive problems because no one would know who they were or what they were doing fascinating i don't think it really did cause problems in the end but i was very anti at the time anyway jamie who are you who am i um i think my most usual uh title or label I give myself as director. Nice general catch-all, could apply it to a bunch of different things. 
Um, some of it's just simply practical because I am a director of the business that I run. Um, I used to have co-founder when I set up my first business nearly a decade ago. And um, I dropped that after a while because um, one of the things that I noticed was when people then said, so who else have you got working with you? At the time, there was only about two, two of us and a dog. And they were saying, oh, you're trying to make yourself sound a bit bigger than you really are. And I thought, maybe there's some truth in that. I am trying to sound like I'm at the start of a you know, unicorn creation here, co-founder and philanthropist and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, no, that, that's not who I feel like I am really. So I, I dropped that, did toy around with the idea of the MD CEO type role, and that just didn't feel right either. Um, I am currently acting as a partner in a search business as the, and I have a title there called the Head of Transformational Leadership. So that's how I'm introduced in that context. And it suits the the kind of services that people then associate with the the reason why I'm in the room. room. And there's, there was a period of my life when I was working for a well-known global bank as um, a senior executive in Hong Kong. And it's one of the funniest stories I've I've, I've ever had related to labels. I was uh, hired as you know regional head of strategic change, and then I got promoted after about three or four months to the regional COO um, and deputy finance director or deputy CFO. And I said, "Well, that's great. I've got to do my business cards again because business cards in in Hong Kong at the time, maybe even still now, were a central part of." getting to know people in the local community and when you were and I was dealing with an awful lot of network of partnerships and things um, as part of this uh, role I was in and uh, my team I, I basically said what do I call myself stick it on the card and we're done and my team said no absolutely not we've got to sit down and discuss this properly I said okay why and they said because what you call yourself is important to us because we then update our titles accordingly and there are variations that you could choose and there's a whole dictionary glossary of terms that allow you to choose an appropriate sounding title for your role so that we can then adjust accordingly and some of them make us sound more important than others and that's really good for us socially and with our families and it never occurred to me at all that what i was disregarding as me, for me, it was just like, well, it's just a, a badge for my seat type thing. For them, had real cultural and societal uh, uh, significance in who they felt they were and how they were seen by people around them. So we had a whole afternoon set aside to choose the right title, actually, which worked better for them and I, because I didn't care. Um, so it was, it was fascinating how this thing around labeling has so much depth at times and so much importance, depending actually from where you where you come from and the context you're in and so on and so forth. And I've never forgotten being um, educated like that by uh, the team that I'd hired. Well, the really interesting thing there, I think is, and I've observed this a lot as well with hiring people over the years that you might want to come up with a role title that most accurately describes what they're going to be doing. Cause you think, well, that's the right thing to do. What are they going to be doing? I'll try and find a role title that describes that. But then actually picking a role title that has meaning in the external world is often way more helpful even though people have assumptions about what certain people in a certain role with a certain role title will be doing or have done 
it's still often preferred to pick the label that comes with a set of preconceptions about who that person is and what they'll be doing and a status associated with it. Yeah. Don't you just love it when you see people with a job title that is basically a whole bunch of internal company acronyms huh. bundled together? And you go, what does the SCMPDA stand for then when it's at home? Oh, well, I'm the head of this, that, and the other. Okay, well, I would never have been able to work that out from that long string of letters. But well done, type yeah. thing. So if you have your recruiter hat on, that's very hard to work with, right? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that gift, Boston Consulting. Yeah. So, <laughs> Graham, what do you call yourself? Oh, so uh, following Jamie's tack, legally director, because for a lot of corporate identity stuff, director is a label that you need to have, company director from there. And then like things like when insurance says, what's your job title, director gets put in there. Um, I've played around with founder in the past but I don't like it because it's more than just me. So I get that it implies philosophy and where the philosophical anchor for the whole culture really comes from. But I, I just settle on one thing, Graham. And you see, like if you ever see this on Zoom, you'll see I always just have Graham listed as my name on my Zoom thing because I'm like, well, it's me. I can put all the labels you want on it, but at the end of the day, it's me. And as we've said through this podcast, sometimes that will lead people to resonate with who you are and sometimes it won't. Essentially, I want Graham to be seen like Beyonce. That's what I'm really saying with this. You know, <laughs> just one name and just known as a superstar. Clearly, that's the angle I'm going for. Just to push you a little bit on that, your if I remember rightly, your LinkedIn profile. Oh, call yeah. yourself the the intergenerational inspirer. inspirer. Yes. Yeah. Now that's a label. That's right. Yes. Because that's what and that's my, definitely not that's what my operations and marketing lead helped me came up with. Right. To present that label to the outside world, but yeah. I, if you ask me personally, I don't like labels because yeah, they for that, me they get label, in the way. That label exists. To give somebody who, with yeah. less than a second of notice, some sense of yeah, what I'm about, the way you might be able to help them, right? Yeah, that's one of the ways we use labels. I think, yeah. Jamie, I want to come back to the inference ladder because I found it fascinating. You, I think, if I understood it correctly, you had essentially three layers: you had data, meaning, and then beliefs. Was that it's four? There's data, what you extract from it. Okay. What what meaning you add to what you've extracted from it, and then your choice of what to do with it. So that for me maps perfectly to the pyramid principle way of communicating that Barbara Minto, McKinsey's first female consultant, wrote in sixties or seventies. That has become the kind of way that all of the top consulting firms communicate, but it maps. It's exactly the opposite way around. So the the pyramid principle starts at the top with a governing thought and then a key line, which are the, the bits of information that support that governing thought. And there's normally two to five things in the key line. And then underneath the key line, you have insights extracted from data and potentially data themselves. So it maps perfectly to your... You, the, the bottom two layers of data and insights from data are 
what you've extracted from the data are kind of merged a little bit, but other than that, it maps perfectly. And the way that consulting firms and consultants use that is they, and this is exactly what we teach in our training, is to start with that governing thought and only go deeper if people need you to go deeper. So the model one and model two that you were referencing earlier, and I heard from model one is kind of a, a commitment to being right, and model two, a commitment to being curious. You could call it those things, right? So yeah. if you're a consultant or a consulting client who is sitting in model one thinking, well, I just need to know what the right answer is, the way that we teach to communicate works perfectly because yeah. you just sit at the top of that ladder of inference and say, well, I'm going to just take what you mean to be true. And then occasionally you get clients that are like, no, I want to go down. I want to dig deeper and really understand where this has come from. And that's why you have the rest of the pyramid in place there. But I just thought it was a striking, it's the same idea, just articulated in different ways from different ends for different purposes. Well, I remember having, uh, when I did the final parts of my accreditation 20 odd years ago, which is lapsed by the way. So if Bob Putnam and Phil MacArthur are listening to this, which I suspect they're not, don't worry. I'm not pretending that I'm still out there peddling action design work. I'm not on the faculty. Um, I didn't pay my dues after about 10 years, which I'm really sad about now because I, I loved everything about it. But when I was doing that accreditation process, actually one of the big debates we had was exactly what you've just described. Isn't the consulting model one that is directly supporting and driving model one behavior and things like McKinsey have institutionalized their own values as being brilliant at that, and the likes of Bain and BCG, et cetera, as well. And yet what we're saying is actually for a mutually productive conversation, you've got to flip it in reverse. And you've got to be willing to be very transparent about what's going on for you across all those dimensions in that ladder in a conversation. And you could try and do it fluently, which is the real skill, in a way, in a way that's very authentic as well. Um for you to actually make mutually beneficial progress rather than just being told you're right or being told you're wrong, which is kind of like the pendulum swing of the Model 1 mm. um, experience. And it was very much a quite a heated debate because people said, but consultants are there to, to make the world a better place. I'm like, they could be, and they might sometimes do it. But what we're doing is we're ingraining a method of shortcutting and believing because of my suit and how much you pay my daily rate that I'm right. And, and you're, you're dim diminishing your ability to take that down into mutually productive territory because you don't either have the confidence or the willingness or the time to challenge me to unpack that and then compare what I've got on my ladder with what you've got on yours. Oh, but yeah. And so anyway, the conversation went on. It was fascinating. And I think on the there's a side there where the old adage of no one ever got fired for hiring McKinsey comes into play. It's like, well, we hired McKinsey and we're just going to trust what they say. Mm. And that can be a delegation of authority. But on the other side, we talked start, started this conversation talking about shortcuts being both risky and necessary to simplify the world. And part of part of the reason for staying at the top of that ladder of inference is as a busy executive, sometimes the world has to be simplified for you so you can make a decision and you have to trust it. Yeah. So the art there, I think, and if we bring this back to what leaders should be thinking about is to 
you've really got to pick your moments where it's worth digging down through the layers with that level of curiosity, that Model 2 type behavior to get behind behind the labels and the assumptions. Because if you try and do that on everything that everybody says, people are going to stop talking to you pretty quickly. <laughs> it's pretty, for, and, and you're never going to make any progress, right? So how do we how do we judge that trade off? Like, how do we decide this is an issue where I really need to understand what's going on and dig beneath the labels? And how do we say it's fine? I, that I can just run with that as a label as an assumption. Well, I would first of all, and I'll jump in on that one because I can see Graham deep in thought at this moment with the sun. He's basking in the sun, deep in thought. We're going to get a pearl of wisdom in a minute. He, he may have gone to sleep. I'm not sure. Oh, it we'll could be that he's gone now. to sleep. Um, but I think both there's... are very possible right now. <laughs> I was going. I'm going with option one from the non-verbal label that I was giving you all. Um, <laughs> I was deep I, in I, thought. I think it's, it starts, Derry. I think my first personal view is it starts with just becoming much more acutely aware that labels are just going to be around all over the place. Number one. I don't think there's a right answer as to which one you pick on uh, to dig into. That's something that you, as a leader, learn over time. Either uh, becomes uh, more intuitive that you can do it enough in the moments that matter um, for you to kind of then say, well, that worked, that didn't work, or it's slowing stuff down too much or whatever it might be. But the the, the real skill is to say, how do I just make sure I pay attention to the, the number of labels that I am both creating, using, and hearing about so that I don't just make all of those things reality and facts. They are the, st- the tops of lots of ladders. And when I feel that spidey sense tingle of, I'm not entirely sure about this, I then have a skill to walk down the ladder with somebody else and compare mine with theirs so that you start to get up behind the label of each individual when it matters most but i don't i don't think there's a right and wrong answer you're absolutely right if you try and do that in every interaction <clears throat> then the world would grind to a halt certainly the world that you inhabit but it would grind to a halt yeah yeah for me i think it's another tool in the leadership toolbox you know we've often talked about leaders orchestrating the space of which their team performing and if as a leader you're taking a scan and a view on the effectiveness of the team, what's working, what's not working, what's driving the results that we're getting, whether they're good or bad results or at expectation or below it or way above it. I think it's another tool that we're talking about here to say, well, look at the labels that exist and, and what impact are those labels having? What's the source of that that label? And you know, is it a label that's supportive of the outcomes you're trying to achieve or not? If it is, great, endorse it, you know? You know, um, I'm trying to think of the number of times when groups form together and somewhere within the first 12 hours, they've created a name for themselves. Some sort of catchy collect-all name that kind of sums it all up. And sometimes they can be really, really helpful. Um, But other times... You know, where does that actually get in the way? Because someone's really struggling with being feeling part of the group. So they get the name, but they don't feel part of it, you know? So I think it's, for me, it's another tool in the toolbox of leaders to just a facet by which they can look at the group, the dynamic, and how they can leverage that dynamic. 
I think one of the things about being a leader, which we, I think we've pointed out with a number of other things, uh, where the application or the use of the tools in the toolbox becomes more important is that the leader sets the tone for whether you can shift a little bit away occasionally from model one behavior in this context. Because if the leader only ever exhibits model one and does it maybe over indexes on it in a very con consulting led style, which is here's the statement, there's a bit of stuff that supports it, but otherwise it sounds very compelling, doesn't it? That's my leadership vision. That's where we're going. That's how we're going to do it. And there's no, you know, let's let's try at least at some point in our choice of direction as a team, because typically the first leader will be a team or team small t sets of teams rather than, you know, an entire enterprise. Um, if if the leader doesn't ever take a moment to go, well, is it worth just taking one minute to check what might be uh, people's reaction if they understood what was on my entire ladder? and then compare it to what else might be out there that we could consider or should usefully consider, then I think the leaders undervaluing their team's input, their observations, their, un their ability to make sense of the world, and also is falling into the trap, you know, one of those classic leadership traps of believing their own publicity, which is because I'm a leader, I have to be right. And if nobody challenges me, and by the way, unless I create space for it, they won't then I'll just keep doing it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reminded of um, a piece of consulting work I did once where I was working with a private equity firm looking at all of the deals that they'd done over 10 years or so and what made a good deal and what made a bad deal. And one of the things that we did was look at the scenarios that they'd modeled out for each of these deals. So generally speaking, you've got a base case and then you've got a high case and a low case. And the model that they use, which is not uncommon at all, was we're going to take our base case and then we're going to think, what if everything went right and we'll get an exciting upside number? And then we'll think, what's like 5 or 10% below the base case? We'll, we'll call it our low case. And the challenge that we put to them was think about what it would take for this to go to zero. I think about what it would take for all of this to go completely wrong. Like drop the story of your low, the, the worst case scenario is a few things go slightly wrong, like pressure test. What could go really badly wrong? If all of your assumptions prove to be incorrect, what's it going to take for us to go to zero? And hearing you talk a bit, uh, Jamie, about developing that leaders, developing that intuition as to when it's appropriate to dive deep or not. I think actually there's a couple of questions that, we could all be thinking about so the reason that like these labels cover up assumptions there's a set of assumptions there that is in our world that we make sense of that we then use to make decisions and those those decisions sometimes the labels will matter and the assumptions will matter to those decisions and sometimes they won't so i think the questions that you can ask yourself are are there a set of assumptions here that if they were wrong or if there was a different story, would influence this decision. Just stepping back for a minute and saying, is it possible that my assumptions are completely wrong here, or there is a completely different story that you could tell that will influence this decision differently? And if there is, that's time to dig down as you're kind of developing that intuition. Just stopping for a moment and saying, like, can I imagine, I get even as far as can I imagine the opposite of what I believe 
to be true. Mm-hmm. And if I can, and that influences the decision I'm going to take, then I need to pressure test a bit. I think that's quite a practical question to avoid yeah. digging on every single time. Yeah. So any closing thoughts from you chaps? We're going to wrap this up. Conversation about labels and assumptions and the necessity of them and the risks associated with them. Well, the only word I would maybe add to that is the inevitability of them. Inevitability, yeah. Uh, They exist and they continue to play an important role in us as human beings making sense of the world so it's really knowing that i.e we live with labels we create them all the time how do you adjust accordingly to ensure that you don't then fall foul of all the risks and the limitations of living in a just label filled world and you take the time to dig below the surface every now and again agreed what he said (laughs) cool The one bit we didn't touch on, actually, Jamie, was you You also talked about the opportunities from labels, and I think that would be interesting um, to explore. Is this just inevitability and risk, or is there actually opportunity from the use of labels? Maybe that's a future episode, Graham, for you to stick on your list. For thank now, you. listeners, thank you as ever. We will draw this episode to a close, and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, guys. Cheers, everyone. find any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you Mm